Good evening. You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 8.50 p.m. Mountain Time on CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcast out of the University of Calgary campus. We feature inspiring interviews, poetry and fiction readings, and varied literary segments. Let's get started. This episode of Writer's Block features an interview with Humphrey Hawksley, followed up by a poetry reading by local writer Bennett Gilliland. After that, we have my interview with Gayatri Shukla, as well as a fiction reading by Kayla Rutledge. To conclude this episode of Writer's Block, we also have a bonus trivia segment. Without further ado, let's start the episode. Hi, this is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Block. I'm here with an interview with author Humphrey Hawksley about the fourth installment in his Rake Ozana series. The book is called Ice Island and is partly set in the Baltics as well as in Japan. Here's my conversation with Humphrey Hawksley. What prompted you to write the latest installment of your series? Uh, well, it was the it's the fourth one in the series, and each of the ones in the series have had a different location with a geopolitical element to it. So the first one uh, was on the U.S.-Russian border, which is in the Bering Strait, and Ray Kazena, who is the hero protagonist of the series, he comes from an island there called Little Diomede. Not many people know about this island, but it's the furthest territory of a U.S. sovereign territory, and it's just three miles away from a Russian island, which is actually a military base. And Reiko Zena is an indigenous Alaskan who is a member of the Alaska National Guard, and he broke through to officer rank there and is now a major. So the first, the first book, uh, Man on Ice, was based there when the Russians attempted to seize that island, and, uh, and, and Reiko Zena was instrumental in getting the island back. The next one went to the Norwegian-Russian border, where there was a, a, a bit of espionage and high adventures and dog sledding and snow and ice going on there. And then the uh, the third one, Man on Fire, started again on that border in the Bering Strait when a courier was going to come across from Russia with some secret information. And she got killed by the Russians. And there was a huge espionage hunt which ended up in Europe. And this one, I thought I would go to Asia. So it begins in Europe, but it ends up in Japan. And the premise of it is that Japan is meant to be a big US ally, a strategic alliance there. And Japan is America's linchpin uh, in securing the Indo-Pacific. So this question here that Rake is challenging is, what if Japan is not as reliable as we think it is? And what would be the mechanisms to prize it away from the United States? Much of the book has to do with the Yakuza in Japan. So why was that fascinating to write about? I think it was that there was in 2011, the Obama administration published a presidential executive order. And that is something that the president uh, looks at and says, we need to get this done. And in this particular one, it was about organized crime being a threat to American democracy. 
And I looked at this some years ago, and I saw the Russians were there. I saw the Latin American drug cartels were there, and the Italian mafia was there. And then I saw that the Japanese Yakuza were included. And I thought, okay, so why the Japanese Yakuza? Are they included in this? And I talked to some people. I talked to contacts in the security services. And they said, you have to look at Japan, and they are very powerful there, and they could be very dangerous there, and they could be instrumental in prizing away that strategic relationship. I said, and why would they do that? Because of money, because of control, because of taking power. And also, that part of Asia is very interesting because you have the Russians are there, the Chinese are there, the North and South Koreans are there. Uh, and there's a lot of money to be made there. So if you run an organized crime operation, wherever it is in the world, the more chaos and the least government there is, the more powerful you can become. You started out as a foreign correspondent for the BBC 40 years ago in Asia. So why do you continue to be fascinated by the region? I do, yes. I was, my first posting with the BBC was actually to Sri Lanka, which right now is imploding yet again. And from there, I did India. I did a lot in Pakistan, India, Bangladesh. And then in East Asia, it's called East Asia, Hong Kong, the Philippines, Uh, China and the whole of Southeast Asia. And it does interest me because it is a region that when you look at what we call the developing world, it's going somewhere. It knows what it wants and it knows how to get it. And it's got a sort of mantra about trade and money, create wealth and do trade. And if you go, as I've done, crises all over the world to Africa or the Middle East, it's not about that. The, the, the issue of violence and war seems to predominate over that issue of, okay, let's do a deal, let's make trade. And Southeast Asia is a fantastic example of trade and how they have a myriad of different political systems there. I mean, they've got military dictatorships going cheek by jowl with democracies, with authoritarian states, with religiously based governments and that sort of thing. But they all get on together, and they all trade together. What got you interested in writing novels, with the first one published in 1997? <coughs> well, that was, uh, excuse me, that was when I was the BBC Beijing bureau chief at the time. And China was a fascinating place at that time. And it was just beginning to become this sort of glittering skyscraper highways, airports, place that we know it is today. Uh, so half of my job was reporting that. And then half of it was reporting the human rights abuse, the repression of religious groups, and the sort of thing that, that China is. I mean, China is an authoritarian state, and, and that's what it does. And at that stage of my career, I wanted to get a book under my belt. So I wrote a very detailed outline for a nonfiction book about China. And when I got to London, an a, a literary agent took me to see a legendary editor, a man called William Armstrong, who had just done a very successful book called The Third World War uh, by General Sir John Hackett, who was a, a former a British military commander. It was a huge bestseller. And he looked at my proposal and then pushed it to one side. He said, this is all very worthy, this proposal. We could do this book. It might sell a few thousand copies. But he said, could you do a book for me about the United States and China going to war with each other? And I said, yeah, I could do that book for you. 
And he said, all right, then. And being a journalist, liking a good editor, I wrote that book with a co-author who was with the Financial Times. And that came out in 1997. It was called Dragon Strike. And it was a huge success. And since then, I did as a sole author two others, the similar ones. I did Dragon Fire, which was about Pakistan, India and China at war. And then I did do another book called The Third World War. What can you say in fictional works versus what you can say in journalism? Well, in fiction, you can you can make things up and you can take in in the fiction I do. I like to be grounded in in credibility. Uh, But of course, the characters are made up. Some of the locations you can invent. Some of the things that happen would not happen in real life. They might. But I think the biggest difference is that if you're a journalist, your job is to tell the top line of any story as soon as you can. If you're a novelist, you have to keep the mystery and that top line almost to the end of the book because you unravel the clues as you go on. A news reporter and journalist, you turn it round and you actually have to tell people straight off what's happened. Are you a card or a chess player? How do you devise your characters and move them around the playing field in a thriller? Well, you have to you, you have to sort of identify first of all your protagonist, which is your hero, and your antagonist, uh, who's your bad guy, uh, your villain, your your good guy, and your bad guy. And you have to identify or tell the reader what each of them wants, and then put in place the things that are going to stop them getting it. And then there's a raft of characters around that supporting characters that could be a love story, it could be a betrayal. It could be something else like that. So the one I'm currently working on today, I have a particular person that is seeking out to do something pretty bad, but he needs somebody to bounce his ideas off. So I am having to bring in another character in order to for him to have those conversations that can relay the information to the reader. After you've been a journalist and broadcaster for so long, what keeps you in the conversation on world affairs? Well, the world affairs keep me going because they keep changing, and the twists and the turns of them are absolutely incredible. So, if you go back to February, um, the world leaders, all the experts, were saying that Russia would never invade Ukraine, and now we have a European war on our doorstep.、Um, nothing seems to be、uh, unavoidable. So, people are saying, "Is will China now invade Taiwan?" Here in Britain, right at the moment, we have got a. A sort of sportsman-like race for the leadership, and in Canada you have the twists and turns of, of of a general election and those sort of things going on. So I think that as a novelist or a thriller writer now, I can look at any story in the paper newspapers and try to imagine how that whether that would make a good thriller, and if it did, how to make it work. When was the last time you were in Alaska to get a sense of the place as well as the indigenous people up there?、Uh, that was、uh, I was there a year ago, and、uh, actually almost exactly a year ago. And I was looking for new locations、uh, for the Reiko Center because in the next one that I do after Ice Islands, I want to bring him back to Alaska. And ground a story there,、uh, and I also had some very interesting conversations with veterans there and with the Alaska National Guard.、Uh, and it, it ta- I mean, Alaska is 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 the the Elmendorf Richardson military base in Alaska is the base there for NORAD, which is the joint Canadian and American protection of that coastline. 
there. So if the and, and they have been particularly busy lately because the uh, the tension with Ukraine means that there is has to be more awareness on that border. And although it's an incredibly quiet border, if you look at it, it, you know, this is a place that, you know, things could flare up. And this is where you've got the two superpowers actually facing each other. So in Europe, they're fighting. And that's a sort of proxy war in a way, if you want to say it, between the US and America. But actually, up on that Alaskan uh, border there, that is where they are directly facing each other eyeball to eyeball. Thank you for speaking with me today. Anything else you'd like to say about the novel? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Jenny. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to be on your show and, and explaining a bit. Uh, yeah, if, if anybody wants to learn a, anything about the Baltics, the Baltic Sea, where it begins, the Orland Islands, a conflict resolution, two characters that don't know whether they should hitch up and spend time together or be suitable, uh, that keep falling in and out of love, and want to learn about Japan, modern Japan, and how that is, read Ice Islands. It's a, it's a thrilling read, but you also learn a lot. All right. Thanks again. Thank you, Jenny. Bye. Hi, this is Jenny Kwong for Reddit's Blog. That was my conversation with Humphrey Hoxley about the fourth installment in his Rake Ozana political thriller series. The book is called Ice Islands. Along with being a writer, Humphrey Hoxley has worked as a journalist as well as broadcaster. You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. If you missed our interview with Jenny Kwong and Humphrey Hoxley, you can always tune in to CJSW.com to hear our full episode after it airs. Coming up next, we have a poetry reading by a local writer. Stay tuned! And they lived happily ever after on CJSW. They contain a strong frame, six-pack billboard and a mountain range of muscle. They like a plan, an erotic script wherein the innate confidence can make the words live in a whisper, park along the earlobe, and magnetize to the pleasure centers. They value a rabble-rouser who knows where to prod, to incite jovial riots and sexual aggression, a superspecies, born with machismo or a clandestine pheromonal gland atypical of mine and many others' biology. Trendy is the one who speaks the loudest, quips, hoots, and hollers, as it fabricates friendships that appear cemented, though just as flimsy as mayfly intelligence and just as short-lived. They are the best at personal hide-and-seek, and aside from the Bordens or the Bundys can make performance feel like lucid human characteristic, don't always trust a frontline first impression formula of empty promises and corporeal perfection. Don't always trust the ones who win over crowds and don't have to try as hard to do it. That was a reading of the poem Lynch the Perfect Ones by Bennett Gilliland. Bennett Gilliland is a local writer who is currently studying at the University of Victoria. 
You can follow his works and publications online at Bennett underscore Gilliland. Coming up next, we have an interview with Gayatri Shukla. Stay tuned. You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. Good evening, everyone. This is Maddie Robinson interviewing Gayatri Shukla about her new project for CJSW. Hi, Gayatri. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Maddie. How are you? I'm doing fabulous. So I thought I'd reach out for an interview because I liked, I wanted to ask you about the project that you are publishing soon. It is an anthology and I was really interested in asking you about it. Uh, did you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about the project? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. As you know, I'm also a podcast host at CJSW for Hearth to Heart. And so it's just nice to be in the studio with you and sharing more about this project. So the book that I'm publishing is called Landed, Transformative Stories of Canadian Immigrant Women. It has been a wonderful experience. There are 37 women from 30 different countries around the world who currently live in Calgary, who share their journeys of immigration to Canada in the book. So it's a collection of those short stories and it brings light to sort of the value that immigrant women bring to our country but also some of the challenges that they may face in their integration so that's what the book is about that's awesome so I understand that you're actually a registered autobiographical writing instructor so I assume that has a lot to do with this project I was reading that this anthology is a little different than other anthologies because most anthologies they have an idea or a concept and they ask people to submit stories that are already completed where this one you kind of took the writers and you worked with them from the beginning of the idea to the end of the idea, which is really, really cool. I was wondering what your process was like there. Yeah, for sure. I would say that definitely has been a very unique feature of this project uh, was to be able to gather folks in community, even if they didn't have an idea, but if they were just interested in the concept of sharing their immigration story for the book. So I invited all of them for a series of writing workshops that I led through this method that I'm certified in, as you mentioned, it's called guided autobiography. And it's just a way of helping folks reflect on their most defining life moments through some prompts that I provide, some creativity exercises, some reflection exercises. So I walk them through this whole process of being able to reflect on their journey and then taking that idea or that seed for their story and starting to develop it into um, you know, a full short story of 900 to 1500 words. And the really cool part about this method is they also get to work in small groups. And so they exchange stories and feedback for each other in that small group. So I think that's probably been the best part about the whole experience is people get to form connections. People get to find solidarity in their experiences, no matter how diverse their backgrounds. Like we're 30 different countries of origin, but I still loved how we were able to come together and really um, find this affirming process of sharing our stories about immigration. So that's a little bit more of about the method of how we came together and, and got the stories. Um, so I understand there's 37 stories in this anthology, right? That's a lot for an anthology, but it sounds like the stories are quite short. Why did you choose that number of, of, of stories? The process for how we began this journey is we got a grant from Calgary Arts Development. So I'm super thankful to Calgary Arts Development for funding this project because it enabled us to just put out a call for applications in the city and invite folks. And we originally planned uh, about 12 stories in the book. But what ended up happening was we got an overwhelming 
amount of interest and responses and applications for the project. So we decided to intake almost tripling that number. We decided to increase that intake to about 37 to 40. And so all 40 of the participants went through the process and 37 of them finished the process and got selected to be part of the book. So it is a big number, but it's been fantastic having sort of um, professional support from an editor and other a project manager and other folks to really bring it together and get it published. Yeah, and from Calgary Arts Development too. That's really cool. I think it definitely felt uh, very validating (laughs) to receive that grant, to see that there's a need to share stories that are often unheard and underrepresented, I feel, in the community. So So since it hasn't come out yet, I actually haven't gotten a chance to read it yet. But I wanted to ask, were there any particular stories that you wanted to mention or stories that stood out to you or any volunteers that you, you read it and you thought, wow, this is such a great story? Like, was there anything like that that you wanted to, like, mention, like, talk about? Oh, gosh, there's, I would say every one of those stories are so unique. They all have this sort of uh, personality and perseverance that just leap off the page. (laughs) I think what really stood out for me was the fact that I also wrote my own story. So after all the workshops concluded, I actually sat down to write my own immigration story um, of how I moved to Canada. And I realized that it's been a healing process for not just everyone in the group, but also the healing that it brought me was unexpected. So I would say what really stood out for me was the stories where, um, you know, people faced a lot of adversity, like escaping war, uh, escaping natural disasters. There's a, um, a woman in the book that I just spoke to a couple of weeks ago who left Ukraine from the Crimea War. And she talks about her journey of fleeing Ukraine after the war and Mm -hmm. um, how her refugee settlement process, you know, transpired after she landed in Canada. So that was something that really struck me as not everyone has sort of the choice to move to Canada, right? Sometimes it's not from our choice. No. And it's it's really, that's the part that really strikes me as um, it can be heartbreaking. So some of the stories are heartbreaking and vulnerable and on the other hand there are stories that are full of love and gratitude for Canada and just I almost feel like it's a process of falling in love with our country to see how much we have that uh, sometimes we don't necessarily look at and we take for granted so those are some of the things that have been very unique for me. So speaking of falling in love that's an interesting kind of analogy to make because I know when they talk about falling in love they they mention that it's kind of a choice. You kind of, you know, you have your reasons, but it also just kind of happens naturally without you realizing it. Like it's a day by day thing. Would you say it's very similar to that almost? Like it's kind of a choice, but it's not a choice. Like you, you kind of fall in love with your own life again or. Yeah. And I would say exactly that. And I think the writing process really put that in perspective. And probably I assume the writing process maybe brings to light things that you didn't know how to like bring to words before or maybe like feelings that you're like oh this is the reason why I feel this way or like that kind of exactly. thing I assume it was probably also very therapeutic the group writing and things like it was that. so <laughs> therapeutic it was cathartic I would say because we don't often give ourselves the time or the luxury to just create a space for self-reflection right we are mm-hmm. so busy in our daily lives there's not enough time to just pause and reflect but I think by creating this sort of um, workshop process for the group um, everybody was given that gift of time and could just take a step back and look at the journey and really start to uh, understand those key moments. And like you say, I think it just naturally ends up being a process of, oh, I feel so grateful for all of the, yes, it's been challenging, but I'm so grateful for all of the the lessons as well as the blessings that I've had. Yeah. And I guess too, I wanted to ask, so I know a lot of anthologies, because again, this one is a little bit different because you're working from the beginning of the conception of the idea of the story all the way to the end, which doesn't usually happen. I know most anthologies, it's usually people that are already writers that are submitting. Did you get a lot of people that weren't, didn't consider themselves writers or were most people there like 
they loved writing, but they hadn't pursued it professionally? Like what kind of, was it a group of everyone? Like it was a, it was definitely a range. And what I encouraged everyone before they started was they didn't have to be a writer. They didn't have to consider themselves a professional writer to join the group. Because as you can imagine, there was also a lot of hesitation for many folks for whom English is a second language, including myself. I'm not an English first language (laughs) speaker, right? And as immigrant women, almost all of us were English second language. So there was definitely a little bit of that self-confidence piece that I also kind of helped everyone work through and say, you can do this. This isn't about being a perfect writer. This is just about getting words out of your heart and into onto a piece of paper. And I can help you with that. So yeah, for sure. And it's all it's all about communication. I mean, I know back when I used to attend school at the University of Calgary, we had a writer's circle that I'd attend every two weeks. And I remember the um, the leader of the circle once said that she found it was so interesting because the people who weren't studying writing or studying English or studying literature actually tended to be the strongest participants. Because they're coming in with just like the passion rather than coming in with almost that like um, preconceived notion of what they think they should be writing. So sometimes it's actually more of a strength than people realize. They think that, you know, it's a weakness, but it's actually useful for them because it's it's more authentic than someone who's maybe trying to come in at at it from a literary angle or something like that. So I thought I'd ask about that because I thought that's that's a very interesting idea for an anthology and it's a lot different than... um, What's typically required of one? Yes. Well, and that was exactly the goal was to get the most authentic, heartfelt stories onto a piece of paper. And then we did hire a professional editor who's certified in Canadian press. And Mm -hmm. she really (laughs) helped us in terms of looking at all of the rules and making sure that there's consistency. And at the same time that we still retain the writer's authentic voice. So we definitely had to figure out those mechanics of how do we strike that balance and still meet our literary standards. But at the same time, ensuring that we get the most authentic stories. For sure. I also wanted to ask you, so I understand that you created a social impact firm called Campfire Kinship. Did you want to talk about that a little bit? Because I know that's connected to this project as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I am the founder of Campfire Kinship. It's a social impact firm, as you said, providing story-based training, uh, creative media and advisory for companies and organizations that are looking to be more equitable, diverse and inclusive. So I support um, uh, folks with their EDNI, I call it in short, EDNI goals. And I love to bring in storytelling as a way to help them achieve those goals because I think storytelling is just such a natural way, an intuitive way that humans have used since time immemorial to connect. And I feel that if we can learn those elements of storytelling that help build empathy and self-acceptance and acceptance of other people and use that in a business context, then we can definitely make the right steps towards fostering a culture that's inclusive and welcoming for all. And so I do a lot of corporate training and I do embed the method of guided autobiography in the corporate training. Uh, The difference becomes that um, in a corporate environment, generally the stories are within the group. Um, But here, what we're trying to do in the community is gather those stories, but also uh, give them a place in print and publishing. So it's, um, it's interesting, but I tailor the topic according to what either the company's interested in or in or the community is in this case, it happened to be immigration, but I've done other sessions where it's a range of topics um, like leadership or courage or... leadership yes. is the big one <laughs> i can imagine so that kind of piques my interest because i would think that in a corporate environment they'd be a lot of people would be a little bit more closed off and not wanting to you know share any details about themselves do you know what i mean and maybe they have more superficial stories or do you know what i mean like i yeah. feel like there'd be a lot of people if, if they're given like the prompt about leadership they might kind of shy away from anything personal there do you find that often when you know it's workshops? it's very interesting i think if you'd asked me the same question three years ago even 
<laughs> I would have said that would be a big blocker for doing this work, but things have changed to a point where I'm finding more and more folks are willing to engage in the EDI conversation. And when I do the leadership training, um, I also talk about my own stories mm-hmm. and I kind of open it up there to say it actually humanizes you when you as a leader can share sort of your own personal journey and the things that you've learned. It helps you connect with your team members and team members get to see you as someone that has compassion and as someone that is genuinely interested in getting to know them as well. So I think as a that's, person, as a person, yeah. and I think it's so important to humanize leadership even and uh, stories just provide a perfect structured way to do that. So things are shifting. There's still, I still encounter some of the the blockers uh, of folks that maybe feel like it's uh, a little bit too personal, but I also um, designed this in such a way that we don't just dive into deeply personal topics without a proper right. entry into the conversation. So <laughs> no, yeah. no, no sadness or grief right at the beginning. Like, <laughs> no. yeah. <laughs> I guess I'd ask a little bit more about that too. So if anyone's wanting to get involved with, with this methodology, how would they go about reaching out to you? For sure. So I, uh, so my website is campfirekinship.com. I would suggest folks to go visit the website. Um, I'm also on Instagram as campfire underscore kinship uh, and on LinkedIn uh, as campfire kinship. I think the easiest and probably the most um, uh, effective way to get to learn more about storytelling is just to book a call with me. Uh, I do complimentary calls, book a call, and then I can sort of go through the different ranges of um, offerings that are available from being able to write your own story through journals and online courses that I have on Campfire Kinship platform to uh, actually setting up a workshop for your team or uh, going through a more consultative process of uh, identifying the goals that you're trying to reach through this work. So I wanted to ask, what can readers take away from your project? I think what I'd love for readers to take away is just having the opportunity to hear and listen to and read diverse stories, I think in a way helps pique our curiosity. And I believe that curiosity is the way forward in order to build more empathy and build more connection and understanding. We often live in this world where conversations become really divisive and polarized. (laughs) And sometimes it's so easy to get caught up in our entrenched positions. But if we just enter the conversation with curiosity, we get to learn so much more and we get to build those bridges that actually um, help us all move forward on whatever issue we're debating about. And so I would encourage readers to just take a look at these stories and read them with that sort of curiosity. And I hope the book will pique people's curiosity. And you actually make a really good point because I, I, I like to listen to a lot of interviews with authors and I forget what her name is, but she's um, a therapist and she was talking about how divisive our time has kind of become. And she said, well, my advice is always get curious when no one else is curious, because if you kind of lean in and you start asking questions rather than making assumptions or you're like, I actually want to know more about this person or I want to know more about like if there's something they don't understand or something that you don't connect with, you're like, OK, I actually want to know more. It's like it's like yes. an opportunity to leap off and start almost investigating rather than pulling back and kind of putting up the walls. Exactly. So that's why the curiosity is actually really important, I think, these days, because I think people take for granted, like, we we have so much at our fingertips that we forget there's still a lot we don't know, right? Exactly. Especially about other people. And Um, And the best way to enter a space of curiosity is through a story, I believe. That makes sense. I think a really good (laughs) story just draws you in, right? It doesn't, um, it's not an exercise that... uh, takes a lot of work <laughs> and it's not it's not a test it's not like you have to read it and then it's like what did you get from this like it's like <laughs> I mean if you're in an English class maybe but yes. like generally speaking it's like it's like it's open it's like well what what did you get from it like it's not you know exactly there's no forced idea um 
I guess I'll, I'll mention too. So I understand this project is launching uh, this summer and you're going to be also having a fun launch event this September as well, correct? Yes. 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 So I, yeah. Um, so the book will be available on Amazon. You just have to search uh, Landed Transformative Stories of Canadian Immigrant Women or maybe even just type Landed <laughs> or my name, Guy through Shukla, and you can find it on Amazon after August 1st. And then we're also having a community-inspired book launch event on September 17th. Uh, again, the tickets to that are on Eventbrite and the event is called Landed Book Launch Celebration. So I would love for anyone listening to to join us if you're in Calgary and just come meet the authors, get your book signed and um, really celebrate multiculturalism because I know it happens to be September is Alberta's Multicultural Month and this book is the perfect theme for that. So we're just hoping to meet more people in the city and um, get engaged in a kind of a two-way conversation as well about the story. For sure. And I think that'll be the perfect event to ask questions about the stories and stuff like that, especially because it comes out a little bit before, which is perfect. I unfortunately haven't been able to read it yet, but I am looking forward to reading it. Um, and I'll probably I'll probably follow up, email you with a bunch of questions. But... <laughs> Anytime. Questions. I yes. welcome that. <laughs> I know I know people who write stories love to answer questions about their stories, but they don't want to like try and force it. So <laughs> they're like, if you want to ask me a question, you know, <laughs> they, they usually like the FAQs. Um, Anytime. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, Was there anything else you wanted our listeners to know about this project or about Campfire Kinship? As I mentioned, visit us on www.campfirekinship.com. And uh, I just hope to see a few folks at the the community event on September 17th. And uh, if you like the book, please do go find it on Amazon uh, and enjoy reading. And thank you, Maddie, for having me today. Really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. It was really great to listen to you talk. That was my interview with Gayatri Shukla. Gayatri Shukla holds an electrical engineering degree from the University of Calgary and an executive MBA from Queen's University with a certification in social impact. She is also a volunteer board director at Calgary Immigrant Women's Association. She hosts the podcast Hearth to Heart on CJSW. If you missed our full interview, you can give it a listen on cjsw.com slash program slash writers dash block. Coming up next, we have Fiction by Kayla Rutledge. Stay tuned! And they lived happily ever after on CJSW. The pool had been dry for years, ever since the landlord decided it wasn't worth the maintenance. The revolving group of college boys that lived in the house always went down to the beach on good weather days anyways, burning their shoulders and watching the sun sparkle off the water and their white, solid teeth. Truth be told, the landlord was tired of the house. He was tired of the boys calling from their large bedrooms that they paid too little for, fixing the messes they created day in and day out, fielding noise complaints from the neighbors. He let the salt and chlorine dry in long, wispy streaks on the concrete and the pool sunk deeper and deeper into the backyard. The college boys mostly ignored it. Sometimes they put lawn chairs in the empty hole and sat all day, falling into a swollen, dreamless sleep in the sky-blue womb. In October, a hurricane blew in, and the college boys took a trip to the mountains for a week, leaving the pool to shudder and howl all alone in the rain, sinking deeper into the soggy ground like a sore. 
The storm filled the pool with everything wanted by no one. Battered palm leaves and broken deck chairs, dead birds and roofing tiles. Then it turned on its heel and left. The week after the hurricane, the floodwaters shrank back into the sea. The college boys' SUVs came careening back into the driveway, and the pool smoked and broiled in the beaming sunlight. The leader of the college boys called the landlord. The landlord promised that he was coming soon and never came, and the debris coagulated into a sludgy, sooty potion that stank all through the fall. The leader of the college boys, who lived in the room overlooking the backyard, drew his curtains and tried his best to ignore the pool. It was his senior year, and everyone agreed he had a very bright future. He was going to propose to his girlfriend in February. By November, the smell of the pool had begun to invade the house. Something at the bottom was rotting, and the boys all agreed they should call the landlord again, but they didn't. The temperature dropped, and still the house smelled like mildew and bath water. The leader of the boys had exams to think about, and had gotten used to keeping his curtains closed. He bought his girlfriend an expensive purse for Christmas. He stopped worrying about the pool. He had other things to be responsible for. On New Year's Eve, the boys threw a party on their back porch, and all of their friends came over to sing and toast to the new year, to the leader of the boys, to his impending engagement, to everything that made them young and invincible. The pool hissed in the moonlight, blurring the reflection of the party into something unrecognizable. The boys dared the smallest of the bunch to jump into the pool. He looked nervously over the balcony at the water, which stunk of bacteria, glinted metallic under the surface, hinting at something that could snuff out his fearsome life. He closed his eyes and plugged his nose. He thought about his mother. The leader of the boys stopped him. He waved a hand at the others, grinned, shouted at the moon. His whole life stood in front of him like something to be grasped. In February, the leader of the college boys proposed to his girlfriend. There were string lights and a string quartet. The ring could cut your heart out. He was very proud of himself. His girlfriend had eyes like stone, shrugged and said, no thank you. She wanted something more. Something more than the boy and his bright future? He couldn't imagine what. The leader of the college boys went home. He told the friends waiting for the surprise party to go home. He went out to sit on his deck alone. The sun was setting hot and orange over the landscape. The pool stunk like cabbage. He was struck by a sudden desire to jump in, to immerse himself in the syrupy darkness of it. He knew that he would sink like a stone until he rested at the bottom. There would be a small pocket of air there, among all those transient, discarded things, he would glow and glow. He would be the brightest thing in the world. That was our short fiction segment featuring the short story, The Pool by Kayla Rutledge. 
Kayla Rutledge is from Charlotte, North Carolina. Her story, The Pool, earned an honorable mention for the 2019 Shorter Fiction Prize from NC State University. That last segment will be concluding this episode of Writer's Blog. This episode featured writing from Bennett Gilliland and Kayla Rutledge, as well as interviews with Gayatri Shukla and Humphrey Hawksley. If you missed this episode live, you can always catch it on cjsw.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know at cjsw.writers at gmail.com. To finish this episode of Writer's Block, we have a fun bonus literary segment. Without further ado, here is our bonus segment. CJSW, tonight on Writer's Block, we will be featuring a special quiz segment called Who Wrote That Line? Hello? Hi, this is Taylor. Hi, Taylor. So it sounds like you're the first to call in, so you'll be our contestant tonight on Writer's Block. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. I'm excited. Awesome. We're so glad to have you. So for this segment, we'll be reading lines from famous romantic novels, and it's up to you to guess who said it and in what novel, if you can. If you can't guess who said it, just guess who the writer is or the novel. So for tonight, it'll be all love quotes. And if you manage to get one of the quotes, you win a prize. Okay, so let's start the game. Okay, so for our first question, this quote is from a famous novel written by one of the three literary sisters. Here it is. I have, for the first time, found what I can truly love. I have found you. You are my sympathy, my better self, my good angel. I am bound to you with strong attachment. I think you good, gifted, lovely. A fervent, solemn passion is conceived in my heart. It leans to you, draws you to my center and spring of life, wraps my existence about you, and, kindling in pure, powerful flame, fuses you and me in one. So that's the quote. This one can be a little tricky, but try to guess, try to guess what book it's from or who said it. I'll give you a second. Did that you want to buzz in? kind of tricky. Yeah, I know who it was. Awesome. Give us your guess. That quote is by Edward Cullen from Twilight. Ed- Sorry? Edward Cullen. Um, actually, it's not, unfortunately. Rats. Close guess, though. It's actually from Charlotte Bronte's famous novel, Jane Eyre, which was published in 1847. It's known as one of the great romance novels. Yeah, Jane's first-person narration is strikingly emotionally dark in this novel, and Bronte's style of writing really changed the landscape of what a novel could be. Um, it's not Twilight, but great guess. Let's move on to our next one. And here's the quote, kiss me and you will see how important I am. Now here's a hint, cause this one's a little tricky. This quote comes from the journal of a famous female writer who is known for her work in the bell jar. I'll give you a second to think about it. Oh, 
All right, Taylor, did you want to buzz in? Yeah, I know which one this one is for sure. Oh, awesome. Give us your guess. Edward Cullen, Twilight. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. Cullen. I'm, no, no, it's, you know, no, oh. you know, it's a great guess. It was actually Sylvia Plath, uh, the famous poet, and it's a quote from one of her journals. Plath is another writer we featured on this show before. Um, she's really well known for her dark poetry. Yeah, that was a great guess. Uh, wasn't Edward Cullen, yeah, but okay. moving on, you know what? All good. Okay, so this next writer is known for kind of his grim tone. So this is a quote. We loved with a love that was more than love. This is from a famous, famous work. It's an American writer. That's a little bit of a hint. This one can be a little tricky, so I'll give you some time to think about it. Did you did you have All a guess? Right. You know, I, I I normally wouldn't go this route. Yeah. But you know, famous book, American author. I have to go with Edward Cullen from Twilight, the Twilight Saga. I'm so sorry. It's actually not the Twilight Saga. Um, it's actually Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, yeah. Right? That, was, that was my second guess. Yeah, no, you know what? I can see why that would be your first guess, though. That was from Annabelle Lee. How about, you know what, this is one of our first times doing this show, so maybe I'll give you a couple of guesses that might help you out a little bit, because this is a hard game, so so no worries. Let's bring the next quote. Okay, um, this is from one of the most read pieces of literature. Um, a lot of high school students might guess this one. Let's try this one instead, and I'll give you a couple of answers that you could guess. So here's the All quote. Right. Doubt thou that the sun is fire. Doubt that the sun doth move. Doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt I love. So is it A, J.K. Rowling, B, Jane Austen, C, William Shakespeare, or D, Stephen King? Those are some of the options that you have. I'll, I'll give you some time to think about it. All right, yeah, for sure. You know, one of the most read books and high school student people like it. I have to go E, Edward, Edward Cullen from Twilight. I'm so sorry, Taylor. That's actually not correct. It's not, it's not it's from not Twilight. Twilight. I'm, I know, I'm it's in. actually William Shakespeare. It's from a Hamlet. Uh, I'm yes. a big reader, you know. I think these just, they're not very popular works or something. Yeah, I, you know what? That's great feedback for our next show. I'll make sure to feature more famous novels. Okay, how about... One or two. Okay, more. yeah, let's try it. So this one's a really famous one. Uh, whatever our souls are made of, his and mine are the same. Okay, so this is a really famous uh, novel. Um, this is one of three sisters that also wrote this one famous, and it's considered one of the best classic novels of all time where this quote came from. Um, I will give you a hint. It is referenced in Stephanie Meyer's, one of her books. Oh, Twilight. Buzz, Twilight. Stephanie Meyer, Twilight. Sorry, the, the book is actually uh, Wuthering Heights, and the writer was actually Emily Bronte, who wrote that quote. They mention it in I, I Twilight, know that was in but Twilight. it's not. Oh, yeah, oh. but that was close. Technically, you know, we could give you partial credit for that one. You're going to get partial yeah, credit for that point. one. Because technically, I think there. it's referenced. Half a point, yep, for sure. So, another one. I cannot fix on the hour or the spot or the looks or the words which laid the foundation. It is too long ago. I was in the middle before I knew that I had begun. 
This is from a, a famous work as well. Um, it has been adapted for film and television and re recently featured an adaptation in 2005 starring Kira Knightley. Oh, Kira Knightley wasn't in Twilight. I'm, I'm going to have to skip an option. Or do you have another one of those multiple choices? Call a friend. Did you want to call a friend? You know what? Yeah. Um, just give me a second. Who is this? This is Taylor. Listen, I'm on a game show. Someone's going to someone's gonna tell you a quote. All right. And uh, you got to tell me where it's from, and I might win a prize. Here's the quote, everyone. I cannot fix on the hour or the spot or the look or the words. I got it. I got it. I know this one. It's definitely, I, I think it's from Twilight. By Stephanie Meyer? Twilight. I don't know if that's helpful, Tay, but I read a lot, and I think it's Twilight. Right, yeah. I'm going to double down and say Twilight. Are you buzzing in, Tay? I'm buzzing in with Twilight one more time. Okay, Twilight one more time. So sorry, that quote is actually from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, known as one of the most famous romantic novels of all time. So sorry. Twilight was a, a great guest, and thank you for your friend that you called. It's always helpful to call a friend. Oh, darn. Sorry, Tay. Okay, so that concludes the end of our show, but hold on, hold on. The judges are telling me something. Okay. Since you got that half point, we're not sure whether you win a prize or not. So we're going to just throw one more quote out there. Yeah. This is a really famous one. It took off with a young adult woman everywhere and its sequels led to multiple movie adaptations. So here's our last quote for the money. And so the lion fell in love with the lamb. All right. Well, you know, yeah, all or nothing. I'm going to go hard and I'm going to say The Hunger Games. Is that your final answer? Are you sure you're buzzing in with The Hunger Games? Yeah. You know, movie adaptations, young audience around the world. Sounds about right. Hunger Games. That last quote was actually a romantic quote from Twilight by Stephanie Meyer. It was her global hit and it spurred Oh no, we were going to give Taylor her consolation prize for not winning. Her prize was going to be a copy of Fifty Shades of Grey by E.L. James. <laughs> Thank you everyone for tuning in today on Who Wrote That Line. Tune in next month and call in to see if you would like to guess. <laughs>